on the phones as well, being able to tune in here in the evening. <clears throat> well, I began this series of sermons for the holy, day, holy time, the Days of Unleavened Bread, <clears throat> back in the Song of Songs, and, and uh, it's pretty physically implicit back there. And I promised you we would go to some scriptures to show that that was speaking of Christ and the church. And then yesterday, we spent quite a bit of time in Ephesians 5, but the main point that ties it together with the Song of Songs is down in verse 32 for a quick review. Uh, Here, the whole context was about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And he summed it up by saying, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, most people would not think of this in the world around us, wherever. Uh, We think of marriage in physical terms. Uh, As we grow up, we see people that are married. We decide we would like to be married someday. And it never goes really with most people beyond that. But here we are being told in Scripture that there is a great meaning or a great typology between a physical marriage and the spiritual marriage of Christ. So what that means is that any time marriage or a marriage relationship uh, is mentioned in the Bible anywhere... It has two applications. You might tend to read it in terms of physical application. But we know from the type given right here in verse 32 (coughs) that there is a spiritual application of it wherever you might find it. Now, with that in mind, (coughs) I want to go back to Genesis for a few moments. Um, Because here was the first marriage on earth. Then God, of course, is the one who instituted marriage. I'll go to Genesis 2. Here he has been creating or recreating the earth and bringing it to the status that we see it today with the land sticking out of the water and so on. And he goes through and shows that creation. Uh, Here in chapter 2, He says in verse 15, The eternal God took the man that he had made earlier in in the chapter. He took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, he didn't have a wife yet. He was the only human being on earth at this point. And God had made a special place for him to live. And the very first instruction God gives is that he was to dress and to keep the garden. Now, that establishes the role of a man before he even has a wife, and that is to work, to produce, to make things right. And it isn't so much that way anymore in society, but it used to be 70, 80, 90 years ago, if a man was considering marriage, Uh, His parents, society around him, told him that he should go out and get a job or find a farm, whatever, find a way to provide a living for a family. 
That is the first responsibility that God lays on a man, is take care of business. Uh, that's your role. That's your purpose in the marriage. Well, not the only purpose, but I mean, that's the first thing that comes up, is you are to support yourself, to take care of that which is around you, that which you've been given. <clears throat> and that is an age-old principle that goes all the way back. We don't see that as much anymore. We see people who are married, and they may be both working or one working or whatever, and we see a lot of role reversal where uh, the wrong one works and the wrong one stays at home and all kinds of things that go on. But Genesis is the place you can go, no matter it seems what the subject in the Bible, and you can have some clues right here in the beginning about any subject. Now, you'll see a lot more about this particular point I'm making in verse 15 in other scriptures later on. But this is where it began. This is the first marriage. And let's look at it a little bit. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. So he was given instruction because he was to be the leader. He didn't have anyone there yet, so God was giving him instruction. You're supposed to work, you're supposed to take care of things, and you're also uh, to have a moral and a uh, law to live by. And the only thing I'm giving you at the moment is don't eat off that tree. So Adam knew that before Eve ever showed up. I think that's an important point, because what follows is very interesting in that light. He knew. I mean, how many instructions did God give Adam? Well, about two so far. He should have been able to remember a couple anyway. You know, he had a, a just-created, very sharp, probably high IQ mind, uh, hadn't been ruined by years of and generations of, of degeneration, so... Uh, he, he should have been able to remember a couple of things anyway. And the eternal God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So there is a statement as well that it, it's good to have someone to be with. It isn't good to be alone as a man. I will make and help suitable for him. And out of the ground the eternal God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So there was another aspect of his employment. It was naming all the various creatures that God had made. So he had physical work to do dressing the garden, and he had mental uh, paperwork to do and uh, naming the animals. So there were at least two aspects of his job here. <clears throat> and Adam gave names to them, but there was not found a help meet for him. So they, they were there, I think, the animals, male and female, and he named them. And he knew the difference and could see that they were a little different. The males were prettier, of course. Uh, <laughs> I jest. He didn't do that with mankind. He just did that with animals. And that's a fact. Anyway, 
there wasn't anybody suitable for him. So the eternal God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And here's the first medical operation in history. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the eternal God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam immediately said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe-man, because she was taken out of man. He adopted her right away. She must have been something, I, I would assume. He didn't hesitate. He says, That one's going to be flesh of my flesh right now. So he was pretty impressed, apparently. And then we have some instruction about this relationship. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, not stay at home till he's 35, eating, living in the basement and eating off of them, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh, not two anymore. And we, I think we read a scripture yesterday, was that in Ephesians 5, where it says there are no more two but one. Uh, through the sexual part of it, they become one flesh. And through that uh, conjoining of the two, they produce other flesh that's just like them, babies. Uh, so it shows that those two put together can produce something like they are. Now this is important to consider. I'll get to that here in just a moment. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They weren't embarrassed. They weren't ashamed. They looked at each other and liked what they saw, and everything was good. This marriage, as it began, was between two people that were perfectly matched together. This was a marriage made in heaven. Perhaps the one and only. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have thought that of their sense, but uh, this one was indeed a match made in heaven. So they were perfectly uh, matched as far as culture and background. Neither one of them had one. Uh, life was fresh to both. There were no uh, bad experiences. There were no uh, there had been no one else involved with them. They hadn't even had a girlfriend or a boyfriend in kindergarten. You know, they, they, they were perfectly matched. And I suppose that they were probably both tens on a scale of one to ten, if you want to use that. Uh, I'm, God, I'm sure God created them to be as good looking as anybody has ever been as a couple. So they, they, they really had nothing to complain about. Everything was good. Now you've heard descriptions of this before, and I've given them, but the point is, this was, on a human level, perfection. They never disagreed. They never had an argument. Nothing had ever, ever gone wrong. No one had interfered with this marriage. So it was perfect. Now, using Ephesians 5.32 as our standard here, understand that this first marriage was a picture and a type of Christ and His bride-to-be. 
he will ultimately have a perfect marriage where everyone there is perfectly matched. There will be no flaws, no problems. Anything from the past, emotional baggage anybody might have been carrying, will be gone. You know, when you maybe get a little older, divorced or widowed or whatever, and you start meeting somebody else, and you kind of wonder about their background and how much emotional baggage they're carrying around. Uh, how, how will this affect this new relationship? Will it work or will their backgrounds create all kinds of problems for them? Not with Christ's marriage. Now, he's going to marry people who have been humans, right? <clears throat> and they, currently, every last one of them has a history, and every last one of them has a pile of baggage of some kind behind him. But you know what? He provides the answer to that. He says, in that world, I, I didn't look the Scripture up, but you've, you've seen it. It says, we will not remember the past. It will all be left behind. This life will have been so upside down, full of trials, troubles, tribulations, every kind of thing you can name, and everything from that point of 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection will be so wonderful and beautiful like it was right here that no one would even want to think about what went on before. It will be erased from memory, God says. He even says, none of our sins that we ever committed will ever be mentioned to us again. Past is past, gone, and not only gone, but forgotten. Now, we as humans will say, well, I forgive you. And maybe you do partially forgive, but you don't ever quite forget and all that forgiveness can go away in a flash, just like that, when one of your old arguments comes up that only you have with each other. And suddenly, uh, in anger, you will remember that which you said you forgave. And it'll come out, and then the things will escalate to a greater argument. Now, not always, but I'm just speaking in general here. But in the world tomorrow, that will all be gone. It won't even be in your memory bank. It'll all be erased. You'll have a new mind. It won't be physical anymore. It'll be a spirit mind, and a spirit mind will not contain that kind of garbage from the past. So all the emotional baggage will be gone. So this marriage, God created when He formed marriage, when He made it by creating man and woman and putting them together. It was a perfect type of of what the future holds for mankind. So we can look at this and say, I guess we've all been a little envious when we've gone back and read this at one time or another. Man, that would have been great to have been there and, and had this kind of a start. Uh, you know, nothing wrong, nothing bad. Just, just right. I mean, the temperature was right, the food was right. Didn't need clothes, didn't get cold, didn't get hot. It was perfect. Now let's read on a little bit. Now the serpent, or Satan, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. 
he's using a snake as a type of Christ. And he said to the woman, Oh, when he talked to Adam, he was first formed. He talked to Eve. He said to the woman, Yes, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, had God repeated to Adam and Eve that instruction he had given Adam earlier about the trees? doesn't say. He instructed Adam before Eve was made. Now, God either came back and gave instruction again, which doesn't say, or Adam had told her. Uh, you're new here, sweetheart, and, and uh, let me show you around my home. This is, this is where I clean the leaves up that might fall off the trees. And these are the animals I named. And he told, them the name, told her the names of the animals, maybe. And he may have said, uh, now that tree over there, <clears throat> God told me we're not to eat off, off of that one. I don't know whether this is exactly the way it was or not, but just paint a little picture here. She says, oh, okay, honey. I won't eat that one, you know. God said that, and you're telling me that. That's good enough for me. Well, he came to her. <clears throat> but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, had that been passed on through Adam, or had God said it to her, it doesn't say. The serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. They didn't even know what death was at this point. They'd never seen an animal die. And they were both alive. They didn't... They, they didn't death is a sorrowful thing. Death is a sad, upsetting thing. They'd never seen a death. They had no clue what death really was. I mean, life was perfect. Everything was good. If everything was good, you would not have considered death because it's a bad thing. It, it, it's a, an enemy that has to be overcome, as Paul said. <coughs> so he said, you're not going to die, for God does know, God knows, that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, he uses on them that which God had designed them for. He had designed them with the purpose of turning them into God someday. And Satan knew that. And it irritated him greatly because he would never achieve the status of being God. He was a created angel. He tried to become God and failed. So he was very bitter and angry and he came to these two immediately because he knew what God was trying to do was create God. Now, had they not listened to Satan and had not partaken of that, God would have, at some point, conferred Godhood upon them. They would have been changed into spirit beings and become God. But God knew that wouldn't happen. He knew that there was a plan laid out here, and they before before man was ever made, it says that he he discussed with Christ that we're going to make men down here, but if we do it, 
they're going to sin, and they will have the penalty of death, and you're going to have to go down there and give your life for them in order to save them. It says that that was discussed before they were ever, man was ever created. So God knew that as good a situation as they were in, Satan could sift them as wheat, as he said about Peter, uh, very easily. That's how easily we are influenced. God knows. Your eyes will be opened, and God knows the difference between good and evil, and you don't. So here's, here's something you need to know about. If God knows it, you ought to know it, right? Made sense to her. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she'd just been told it would make you wise, and it certainly did look good, but looks aren't everything, are they? So she took the fruit and did eat, and gave also to her dumb ox husband with her, and he did eat. Now he'd been instructed again before she was ever made. Don't you do that, Adam. Oh, yes, Lord. Okay, I won't. Honey. Did she have to bat her eyes? I don't know. Uh, but she handed it to him and he wolfed it down. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And suddenly there was shame. Suddenly there was embarrassment. They probably both turned red. Uh, at least from the forehead to the chin, and who knows how far down. Uh, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Uh, aprons covers the lower part of your body, so uh, it was their private areas that they suddenly became knowledgeable of that shouldn't be seen. They didn't uh, put a blanket over their head, in other words. And they hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God amongst the trees of the garden. God had made them for pity's sake. He had designed every little part of them. He wasn't going to be embarrassed by something he designed and made. They were embarrassed because suddenly they knew that this was not a proper state for people to live in, even though there were only still the two of them. There wasn't anybody else to be hidden from. So nudity was the natural state. And under those circumstances, without anybody knowing anything about evil, it was natural. There was nothing to be concerned about. In any way, they heard God walking, and the eternal God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? <laughs> Last time I saw you, right out here in the meadow, but I can't see you. Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So not only shame and embarrassment, but also fear was an emotion that they had never experienced. Fear of what? Nothing. Until they partook of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, who told you you were naked? <laughs> You know, how do you know you're naked? Have you eaten of that tree where I commanded you that you should not eat? Leading question. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So now we have another emotion coming into life. Accusation and jealousy. And I didn't do it. She did it. Or he did it. Either way. It went both ways here. Up to that point, there'd been nothing to argue about, nothing to accuse. And then suddenly, see how fast human nature reacted? Not my fault. She did it. So God turned to the woman and said, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, It ain't my fault. The serpent did it. I mean, the serpent did it. So they were faultless. So self-justification became a prominent uh, issue in human nature. All the works of the flesh came out right here. And the marriage was no longer happy. When they, when they are accusing each other of doing wrong, and they were the one that did right, it all goes downhill pretty fast right there, is what, is what happens. This is not the kind of marriage God wants anymore. All hands, I think, would agree there. It had gotten really out of hand. Before, it had been a perfect type of a perfect marriage, picturing the lamb and his wife the bride of Christ. But not anymore. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you were cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Scientists even say that some snakes used to have legs, like a centipede, I guess, or, or whether they had two that they stood up on, I don't know. But uh, this type was made that the snake would crawl in the dust. And of course, Satan isn't always down in the dust of the ground. That's a physical snake as a type. But uh, what does he try to do? He tries to turn man who's made of dust back into dust. His object is to kill us all because he doesn't want us to become God and to become like God. And he attempted with them like that. Oh, you could become like God. Oh, that sounds good. But that's not what he wanted. And he knew that if they bought his story, they wouldn't be God. So he accomplished that, at least for the time being. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Woman, of course, is type is a type of church in the Bible. And Satan and the woman, or the church are at it all the time because God is using the church or spiritual Israel to develop people to be the bride of Christ. So the greatest enmity that Satan has with anyone is the church. You read that in Revelation 12. It says, when Satan is cast down for being an accuser of the brethren before God, he knows he can't go back. So what does he do? Does he go after all the heathen? No. He goes after the woman, the church, and tries to destroy her because he knows those are the ones who are the candidates to be the bride of Christ and actually do ultimately become God. And that's what he's been fighting since Genesis 2. So he immediately goes and tries to destroy her, and God causes uh, the ground to open and swallow him up like he did Korah. 
and the church escapes to Zion. So, what is ahead began right here. Enmity between the church and Satan. So this is, this is a, a physical analogy, but we know from Ephesians 5.32 that it is a picture of a spiritual analogy. So it's, you, you don't have to read that in. The Bible itself tells you that that applies. Clear back here. <clears throat> Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, once we are converted and have God's Spirit, he says that we are to be co-heirs together. I haven't read that one, I don't think, yet, but I'll get to it. But a man and a woman, as, as a team, as a husband and wife, are to be co-heirs. Now, if you're co-heirs, that means that you have the same inheritance. It means you have the same situation. And God did not, prior to this, say that Adam was to be the ruler over his wife. Now, he had been designated as the support, financially, in other ways. He had been told that she was to be a help suitable to him. So he was to be predominant and be the leader. God made him physically stronger, physically bigger, uh, nearly as smart, uh, and so on. So he was to be the leader but part of the curse here was that he would use his physical prowess and what society would teach him to rule over her. For a man to rule over or to be overbearing with a woman is a bad situation. It's not good. And we got into that a little bit yesterday in Ephesians 5, that he's to love her as his own flesh to be gentle with her, to lead her the way Christ leads the lambs, gently, lovingly, kindly. And if he sets a proper example of the things God gives him as his responsibility, she will naturally respect and want to follow his lead because it's a good one and it produces good things. But if he's not much of a human being and a man then she's not going to want to follow him. And it's a tough road to hoe. And then if he's overbearing, marriage gets really difficult. So God didn't intend it that way from the beginning. But he said, this is the way it's going to be. And hasn't it been that way pretty much ever since throughout almost all society? Is the man, is Tarzan, you Jane, you do what I say. And he's ruled over. There are a few little tribes in Africa and wherever that are matriarchal societies. There's even one tribe of Indians, the Senecas in northern New York, who are matriarchal. And the women are in charge. So they've kind of thrown that off. But that isn't the way it is throughout 99 and whatever percent of mankind today. So part of the curse was that a man would rule over her. And a lot of women have felt cursed by 
the domineering approach of men uh, since this time. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you. <coughs> oh, wait a minute. <coughs> to Adam, he said, verse 17, Because you've hearkened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree, which I command you, saying, Don't eat it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Goat heads and... Uh, uh, the other one slips in my mind suddenly. The one we have around here that gets in your socks all the time. Uh, uh, foxtail, yeah. Uh, shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herbs of the field. So he had given him a, a beautiful garden that had no weeds. He didn't have to weed it. Just prune it, trim it up, pick the fruit, take care of it. Now, he says, thorns, thistles, all kinds of weeds. Wouldn't it be nice to plant a garden and never have to hoe weeds or pull weeds? Man, what a garden that would be. Huh? From that time on, we've had all these problems. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust shall you return. How did Satan's promise to them work out? <laughs> You'll be like God, eh? You'll know good and evil, and everything will be happy, happy. No, didn't work that way. So, we still have to go out. The temperature isn't perfect anymore. I've hoed cotton when I was a kid, back when I was 105. And that's hard, hot work. And sometimes you're out trying to plant in the spring and it's cold and the wind is cold. It wasn't that way before they did this. Perfect temperature, didn't need a coat, didn't need clothes. Just right. Perfect. Humidity was perfect. Life got a lot tougher because of sin. And what God had said would be the case. He says, you're going to go ahead and work under terrible conditions to support your family instead of it being easy. It's going to be tough, man. But you've got to do it. And when you get done with all that, then you're going to die. And you're going to rot. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then God made them coats of skin, so they learned what death was, I guess. Uh, you didn't have skins without killing some animals. Uh, there you go, PETA. Eat that. Uh, <laughs> animal skins, leather clothes. The Lord God said, Behold, a man has become as one of us to know good and evil. God did know the difference between good and evil. He knew good from his creation. He knew evil from Satan's rebellion. So he was pretty well up on it. So he said, He knows good and evil now. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, Therefore the eternal God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he tells him again, uh, you're going to have to work for a living and work hard. 
under, and under bad conditions. So he drove them out and had a cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep them away from the tree of life. I think the Garden of Eden was probably destroyed in Noah's flood and the, the, the angel guarded it until that came and, and washed it away. I don't know that, but that's my speculation. Anyway, they started having kids, but uh, they weren't a happy couple anymore. And when you read a list of the righteous people in the Bible, you will see that every one of them made mistakes and sinned. Every one of them. But you never see Adam and Eve listed in a, a list of the righteous. They're not in Hebrews 11 or anywhere. Uh, whether they ever got back to a good relationship with God is highly doubtful because they were suspicious and upset and accusative. And I suspect they had lots and lots of fights and arguments then because they lost respect for each other. They didn't get along. They'd accused each other. And, you know, once you, once you cross some of those bridges, you kind of hard to recross them and go back because you, don't you remember saying things to a husband or wife you to this day wish you hadn't said? Probably get reminded of them occasionally and so you don't forget them, but you know, we've all said things that we think later, I didn't really mean that. Well, you probably really did at the moment in the heat of anger, but it's not something in looking at life that you would have gone back and said, yeah, I think I'll say that. No, uh, it was anger and frustration and selfishness that made you do it. And uh, then it's really hard to repair it. So I think they had problems from then on. And ever since, marriage has been less than idyllic. Uh, every marriage has problems. Every marriage has a husband and a wife with varying backgrounds, varying genes, varying uh, having been brought up uh, and different religions and different everything. And then they try to get together and make everything happy. And that's difficult to do. And then there's the other thing like the emotional baggage that might have been there from earlier that still becomes a problem later. So, what God did is He started out with something that would picture the marriage of Christ to His bride. Absolute perfection. And then it went downhill really, really fast. And we've been under Satan's influence and our own carnal nature, which came out in them very quickly ever since. So, not only is gardening tough, but so is marriage. So are relationships. And Satan and we did it to ourselves. So now, we have to go to Genesis and see how God intended it, and then go through many, many more scriptures and let Him tell us how it ought to be, because mankind in general has no clue how to conduct a marriage. That's why at least half now, and probably more, wind up in divorce or sticking it out, hating each other, or together just for the kids, uh, or, you know, all the things that we have today in society uh, are basically, maybe not always poor, but certainly less than perfect relationships. They're all a struggle. So, I went back here to show us 
this is the way it really should have been, and this is what we wound up with because of sin, because we don't do what God says. Now, from that point on, we have to study what do we need to do to get it back to what it was then and what God expects in the future. Because everything in between is thorns and thistles and problems and broken relationships and trouble. Some satisfaction, some joy, some happiness, some do better than others, but basically, all in all, not too whippy. All right, let's go back from there to 1 Peter 3. We'll pick up a little more instruction about marriage here, the relationship. Uh, I go back to this one in particular because it has some similarities to uh, Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5 there, Paul is giving instruction uh, about how to conduct a marriage, what the attitudes of each should be to the other. And the reason he had to do that <coughs> because was because Paul, as a minister, had to deal with people who were married. And he saw the lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, all those human traits that cause problems in marriages and wrong types of attitudes. So there in Ephesians 5, he talked a lot about attitude. What should your approach, what should your attitude be toward your husband or toward your wife? Because we all need our attitudes adjusted. As human beings, without the Spirit of God, we have nothing but the works of the flesh. Maybe some human emotions of love and affection and so on, but the driving force of human nature is the works of the flesh. And those come out in so many, many different ways, and therefore Paul was having to deal with uh, less than acceptable marriage situations. So he says, hey, this is the way you ought to treat your wife. This is the attitude that she ought to have and the way she ought to treat you. Seems real simple, doesn't it? Try it sometime and see how easy it is to do what was so simply said. It's difficult on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, I'm headed back here to First Peter. <coughs> and in chapter 3. He's talked here about, in chapter 2, about how Christ gave himself for us. I think it was in Ephesians 5 that he talked about how we would sacrifice for each other and how, for a good man, you might even give your life. Well, here it shows that Christ, who is, his main purpose right now is to prepare a bride. Out of 50, 60, 70 billion people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, He's looking for the 144,000 best choices to be his bride, to rule the world in the millennium and throughout all eternity. So that's his job number one. That's what he's after, to find 144,000 human beings who are willing to try to live up to what they ought to be as a husband or wife, 
in preparation for being his wife. So, that's what the whole Bible is about. Is about starting with Adam and Eve, which didn't work out so well, and finding 144,000. You know, out of tens of billions, you'd think you could find 144,000 pretty decent people, really. I meet people all the time that are nice or seem like good, upstanding citizens. But do they understand what Christ is trying to do? Do they know His truth? Do they grasp what purpose they have on this earth? No, my purpose is just to say I love Jesus and and uh, live till I get old and crippled and die and then go to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a banjo for the rest of life. That, that's, that's all they grasp. Or it's even more fun in the Catholic Church because when you go to heaven, you don't really go to heaven. You go to um, uh, purgatory. And uh, in purgatory, uh, the devil sticks you with a fork, I guess, see if you're done yet. And uh, you don't have much vision of God. And if you're in purgatory, it's a financial thing with the Catholics, your relatives are supposed to give to the church. And the more they give, the less fire you get on your behind. Purgatory becomes a little more tolerable. And if they pay enough, you get out of purgatory. If they don't, I guess you go straight to hell, but I, I kind of forget. But you can get out of purgatory and achieve the beatific vision. That's so that you can actually see God somewhere off in the distance. But it's very cloudy and very murky. And at first, the beatific vision is very hard to make out that there's a God somewhere there. And as your relatives continue to pay, you get a little clearer picture. The fog begins to, begins to diminish. And finally, if everything goes exactly right, you get to see God clearly. That doesn't even sound like a fun process to me, I, you know, made by man and Satan. But it certainly isn't the truth that God had put out here for us. How do I go off on that? First Peter 3. Christ gave himself for us in chapter 2. So, he says there in the last verse, For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So, Christ uses the analogy of herding sheep. And sheep are very delicate animals. They're easily hurt. Uh, they're almost defenseless. They're easily killed by wolves or other predators. And they, they can't even drink out of water that has lots of waves in it. They, that's why it says there in Psalm 23, you lead me by the still waters. Because if the waters are calm, they can get their nose down and they can drink without it going up their nose. And uh, That's what they need. So a shepherd has to be sure to take care of all the needs of a very delicate animal, to treat them tenderly, gently, uh, not get them where they're frightened of him, because he has to lead them. He has to take care of them. And if he beats them with a stick every day, they get so nervous and scared that they won't follow. And that doesn't work. So he uses this analogy here, and it changes chapter, but, the, but what he's saying continues. 
Now, here's the way Christ handles his sheep, he says. Go to Ezekiel 34, and you'll see toward the end of the chapter the same thing. Anyway, here in chapter 3, it says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. I have seen men who thought that somebody else's wife ought to be in subjection to him because, after all, I'm a man, and all women are to be in subjection to me. And one used that on my wife one time, and she kind of gave him what for. I'm subject to my own husband, and I'm not subject to you in the least. Bug off. Or butt out, she probably said. To your own husband, not to anybody else's. Hard enough, just your own. Not every man on earth. Why do people twist stuff around so bad? It just says your own. That's all. That if any obey not the word, they may also be won by the converse conduct of the wives. It should be not conversation, not talking. The conduct. You're not going to talk anybody into conversion. Uh, example by conduct might help. And that's what he's saying here. So what he's saying is you may come into the truth, the knowledge of God's way, and your mate may not be. And that's happened a lot. And 1 Corinthians 7 even makes a, a, an exception to the marriage rules that you should not divorce under most conditions. But it says there, if you marry somebody, I mean, you come into the church and you're already married, uh, if that mate will not allow you to peaceably serve God, you have every right to divorce them. You have an allegiance to a mate, but your allegiance to God is a higher allegiance. Uh, you're to become the bride of Christ. That's your ultimate goal in life, is to be the bride of Christ. So the bride of a man is only a temporary type of that. Okay? So everything you do should be to prepare you to be Christ's bride. And everything you do as a physical woman to a physical husband should help prepare you in the same way because it is a perfect typology. So he says, if they won't let you prepare to become the bride of Christ, you can divorce them and you will not be bound to them anymore. Not bound means free from. No obligation anymore. In spite of what some try to say. And you can go marry someone who is in the church so that you can work together as co-heirs together to the kind of life that you need to live. Why does he allow that? Because he is the one who only called one and not the other. That was his decision. So he doesn't make you be saddled with that if that mate who is not called is contrary or is against what you're doing and fights you on it. He said, no, nothing can get in the way of our relationship with Christ and God. They come first. But then he gives the instruction, don't go do that again. <laughs> if you were in that situation... He says you should marry only in the faith so that you have the same understanding and you can knowledgeably work together to produce the kind of marriage that Christ wants. So he tries to give us, even on a physical level, every chance to succeed toward the goal of becoming the bride of Christ. And that's 
why that exception is made. <clears throat> All right. Um, so he even says that if you if you handle it properly, maybe they will come to understand and to see the truth because they see what has happened to you. You were this way, whatever you were, all your life. And then you start reading here and you learn some things and you begin changing some things. Now up to this point, your life has been the work of the flesh, right? And all of that entails, read Galatians 5 again. And then you start becoming more peaceable, more lovable, more patient, uh, more joy and happiness. Oh, what got into her? Well, honey, I've been reading the Bible and it told me I shouldn't be like I was. It says I ought to be this way. And I'm working on it. And if I made a little progress, you must have noticed it. And that could impress him to the point he say, well, you know, that's done you so much good, I, I might ought to go there too. Now, that works a whole lot better than you learning the truth and saying, hey, look at this. God says you ought to keep Saturday. Look at this. He says you ought to give part of your money to the church. Look at this. He ain't going to look at this. He don't want to see this. Your words, your conversation will do no good. But your conduct might. So he's saying, be subject to your husband, and if they don't obey the word, maybe by the way you live, their mind might be open to something they didn't grasp before. So our influence could be good that way. Anyway, it says then, while they behold your good conduct coupled with fear. You've come to have a fear of God, which means you have a fear to break His rules, which means you are living by His rules and have become a better performing individual, a higher quality individual, because you have higher goals, you are living up to those somewhat at least, and you have become a better citizen in conduct. Then he says, <clears throat> whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of uh, plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on apparel. Now, people use this to say, well, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't do certain things with your hair because that's plaiting. And you shouldn't wear jewelry because it says right here that a woman is to be adorned and it isn't the outward appearance of gold, so you can't wear gold. Then they don't read the rest of it. It says, or a putting on of apparel. Well, if you're going to say you can't wear gold, and you can't plait your hair, then you can't wear clothes either. Clear? <laughs> it doesn't say you shouldn't wear clothes. It doesn't say you shouldn't wear gold. It says your purpose and your emphasis should not be physical beauty and trying to look as good as you possibly can. Now, that's what our world around us today is. That's mostly all it is, is look as good as you possibly can at every moment, and do not be seen and it's your face on in the morning. And, you know, on and on it goes. No. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, 
in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So he shows in Ezekiel 16, for instance, that with his bride, he's going to adorn her. He's going to give her fine clothes, badger shoes, badger skin shoes, and all kinds of nice things that he's going to adorn his bride with. And did in the Old Testament, because Ezekiel 16 was talking about that. But it's also a prophecy for the future. So, those things are okay in moderation and used properly, but they are not to be the overweening thing that you do to emphasize physical beauty. Because he says physical beauty isn't what's important. It's inner beauty that is important. You know what? You can still have inner beauty when you're 80 years old. Physical beauty, you're going to have a tough time maintaining that. But the inner person can still be genuine, can still be beautiful. So he's saying, be of a meek and quiet spirit. How many women do you know today in our women's lib society have a meek and quiet spirit? Well, duh. (laughs) You know. Does that mean she ought to be quiet all the time and never joke or laugh or or show her personality? No. It's just an overall attitude of meekness, of humility, of being in subjection, uh, not being a battle axe, if you will, or trying to take over and run everything by sheer weight of manipulation and power and push. <clears throat> For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Their adornment was their attitude. Their clothes, their jewelry, were secondary. The adornment was the heart and mind, the emotions. That's what we're to do. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... Now, there's a tough one for you. How many of you go around calling your husband Lord or Master? Pretty rare. My wife would joke about that once in a while. Yes, Lord. (laughs) And it didn't bother me. She was joking. Sort of. Mostly. Whose daughters you are as long as you do well... And are not blown away by all this. My paraphrase. He's telling a, a woman what kind of attitude that Christ is looking for in his bride. Now, if we go to other scriptures, we can go to that one in Isaiah 62, is it, where it says that God looks to a man of a contrite heart and humble and meek spirit. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Christ describes the right attitude we ought to all have, peacemakers, uh, kind, uh, loving, uh, gentleness, mercy. Those are all fruits of the Spirit, whether you're man or woman. But here he's, in particular, talking to the ladies and saying, this is the attitude you ought to have toward your own husband. And you'll get along a whole lot better. Now he goes to verse 7. Likewise, you husbands... Husbands like it when I talk about women's attitudes. 
and then they get a little uncomfortable when they get down to the other part that talks about men. That's just the way that works. <clears throat> Dwell with them according to knowledge. That means a man should educate himself in the knowledge of God and God's way and how God would have a man to live. This book is an instruction book on how to live the way God would want a human being to be. And, specifically, marriage, because that's what he's working toward, is the marriage. The rest of human beings, from Adam down to now, he's not concerned with. Now, he loves them, but their salvation is not the issue. That doesn't come along until the millennium, if they survive the Holocaust, or the great white throne judgment, if they don't. If they were babies, or miscarriages, or... People who lived in 110 and never knew God, they'll come up as physical human beings then, and then he will deal with them, and he'll have 144,000 to help him deal with them and teach them the right way. I have seen women who have had two, three, four, five miscarriages, and it's almost destroyed their lives. Their emotional state, some of them are on drugs, they, they, they just can't deal with those losses. It's a very deep emotional thing with a woman to have had a miscarriage. And I firmly believe that every one of those babies that was miscarried or aborted will come up in the great white throne judgment and the, their mamas will get to raise them. Now, if mama was never converted, she'll be physical too. So she can see that abortion or miscarriage come to life and she'll be there to raise it the right way. Now, if she's spirit being then, who lost a child or two maybe uh, in her physical life, she'll be part of the bride of Christ. She'll be spirit. She can be every hair at once, which most physical moms can't quite do. And she'll be able to raise her own kid and teach it. That will be our job, to reign and rule and reign with Christ. So God has set it up where right now He's only dealing with those that He's calling to His truth to be candidates to be the bride to help Him teach the rest of mankind when they come up later on and have their chance then. And we all understand that through the great white throne judgment, but I wanted to bring it out here that a man needs to dwell with them according to knowledge. He has to know why he's here, what God's purpose is, how God is working with him as a type of Christ himself. The male in a marriage is to be a type of Christ. Pretty poor one we all are, but that's the job that we've been given to do. So you need to have studied Christ's life in great detail and depth Understand how he thought, how he reacted, his emotional makeup, the rules he lived by. You need to know all about him in order to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Now, we read her, hers is fairly simple compared to yours. She's supposed to look to you as her leader and her guide 
and to be submissive to you and love you and follow your guide and instruction as long as it's righteous. Her job's hard because you're not much like Christ. But if we get the right knowledge and come to act and react as he did, that makes us a whole lot easier to follow. So the responsibility of getting that kind of knowledge is upon every man who will be a husband. He is to be as Christ was to his wife. Now that ties in where it says Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Because Abraham to Sarah was a type of Christ. And to us, as one of the fathers of the faithful, he is a type of Christ. But he was specifically that to his wife, and that's why she called him Lord or Master. Christ used the term, when he was here on the earth, Master. People called him Master. So it's not a great big spiritual thing, but she is to look upon him as a type of Christ and try to respond to him in the way that she would to Christ. We read that there in Ephesians 5, that she's supposed to respond to him just like she does Christ. Remember that? Let me go back there real quickly, because that's important. And it fits this context. Um, where was that? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So here he says, you're to be like Christ to your wife. Therefore, as I'm trying to say back here, you better know all about him. And you better be as much like him as you possibly can be. And it is the, is the word of God that washes and, cleanse and cleanses. So if your wife is to be improved, that improvement has to come through the use of God's word to teach her how a human being, specifically a wife, ought to be. So you don't have to tell her she has to be like your grandpappy on your father's side told you a wife should be. You're supposed to go to the Word of God and see what God says a wife should be. And then lead her in that way and live in such a way that she might have become a glorious church or a glorious woman, not having spot or wrinkle. We use spot or wrinkle uh, but but that's a spiritual term here as well. Because he says that we are to be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle. That means sins. Uh, you know, we're all going to get spots and wrinkles physically. But we're supposed to be removing. It, it's, it's ironic in a way, isn't it? That as you age, you physically have more spots and wrinkles. But as a Christian, you start out with all the spots and wrinkles of the world. And over time, you're supposed to come not to have spots and wrinkles spiritually. So on the one hand, you're getting old and spotted. And from the other direction, you're becoming less spotted and wrinkled and more pristine in character. So the spiritual overrides the physical. But here somewhere, it says she's to reverence him. I don't see that right up here now. 
for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. So he's there to be helpful in getting her to the spiritual place that she should be. We went over that, so just just that point. Let's go back here. Dwell with them according to knowledge. That's real quick to say, but to come to have the kind of knowledge he's talking about here takes an awful lot of reading and work and meditation and thought and comparison of yourself to Christ. And then you can dwell with her according to knowledge. He's laid a bunch on us, guys. Then he says, giving honor to the wife. You shouldn't think in your mind of her as that old broad. Giving honor to her as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Prayers can be, end, can be hindered. They can be blocked. They could be ruined by a man who is not like Christ and mistreats her and abuses her uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, verbally. There are all kinds of abuse. And it hurts her relationship with God if she's supposed to look to him as being like God, and he doesn't act that way. Now, how can she, in her mind and emotions, give him that kind of honor and respect when he's a jerk, and she has to look past him to try to figure out what God's like? And yet she's got to live with him all the time. So see how that crimps her style? how it crimps her capacity to be spiritual, because the husband doesn't look much like Christ. And he becomes an impediment then. And that's why he says there in 1 Corinthians 7, if you come into the church and your mate is not in the church, if they're going to think carnally, and they're not going to be at all like God, and not let you try to be like God, shove them overboard. Get rid of that. You don't need to haul that around because it will inhibit your growth in the way that it ought to be. Now, I said yesterday, most cases where they marry outside the church are bad and often end in divorce, and that's true in most cases. That doesn't mean that there aren't some in the category of being reasonable, decent, upstanding, moral, good people. And sometimes you can make it work pretty well, in spite of the difference. It isn't normally that way, but it can be that way. And he says, in that case, if he lets you dwell in peace and serve God, stay with them. Not a problem. But if they won't, and in most cases they won't, it is the exceptions that are that high class of person that they will let you do what you need to do even if it goes completely against them. You know, they're a Catholic or a Presbyterian, and now you're part of this Church of God cult, and usually that creates all kinds of head-knocking. But sometimes a few couples can deal with it and deal with it pretty well. I, I thought after I said that, 
yesterday that I, I needed to amend it a little bit to say, you know, I, I'm not saying it can't work for you. God says, don't do it. But if you did do it, uh, if you're both decent-minded people, you can make it work. But most of the time, people are not disposed to be able to accomplish that. Anyway, treat her as the weaker vessel and heirs together of the grace of life. So you should, as a husband, spend time with her, realizing you have the same inheritance, the kingdom of God, and to become God and become the, the wife of Christ. So help each other, and particularly as the leader, you help her in her spiritual life as a co-heir to Christ. You don't treat her as a second-class citizen or beneath you. She is not, in any way, a lesser-class citizen than you are, despite popular belief. Kind begets kind. God created a suitable wife and mate for man who was of equal status as him. Her mind was just as good, her body was just as good, and man's view better. Uh, everything about her was good, and just as good as he was. But she wasn't made as big or physically as strong, and he was supposed to protect her and help her, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, to make her feel secure and loved and wanted. Why? Because Christ gave himself for the church and by telling us over and over how much he loves us and how much he was willing to give for us, he's trying to convince us that in his bosom we should be secure. We should feel safe. We should feel loved and cared for, not used and abused and become a slave or, uh, you know, you're here for my convenience. Not here to be an equal working together toward a common goal as equals. And even as equals, doesn't have to be man and woman. You get two men together. I don't mean that way. I mean just two men working together or whatever. They're the same. They're both skilled. They both may be master technicians at whatever they're doing. But you know what? Without being overbearing, without trying to tell the other guy what to do because I know better and I'm smarter than you and whatever, automatically, one of them will be the leader. One will take the lead. You can't have two people together that are co-leaders in every way and one does not take the lead. Maybe gently. Maybe by personality, whatever. But anytime you got two people together, one's a leader and one's a follower, to one degree or another. So, God didn't make a man and a woman one better than the other, but He made the man to be the one to take the lead, the aggressor for the most part, and take care of her, support her, do everything He can to make her feel secure. That's His job. 
Now what does Christ say He's going to do with His bride? Go back to Revelation 21. He said she'll never have any more pain, no more fear, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. He is going to make her perfectly secure and feel loved and comforted and she'll never have to worry or be concerned because he is doing everything he possibly can to make sure her every need is taken care of. May I see the hands of all you women in the world who have a husband who is that caring and that loving and provides you with every emotional, mental, spiritual, physical support you could possibly want. Not very many hands went up around the world. Because men tend, even though some of them are better at it than others, to be a little bit overbearing and oppressive. Bring me a beer. You know what my wife used to tell me? Go get your own. And while you're at it, would you mind bringing me one, sweetheart? (laughs) She didn't do it in a mean way. I don't mean that. But she would not let me become overbearing. She wouldn't tolerate it. And I'm thankful for that. You know, I wouldn't want to marry a woman who couldn't do everything and couldn't lead. I would want to marry one who could. Why would I want an incapable, incompetent woman who can't accomplish anything? No, I want a smart, diligent, competent, capable woman who can do all those things and could do them all, but says, Honey, you take the lead. And I don't mean by saying, I'm letting you be the leader, because she still is in that case, by even saying that. But she has an attitude. That's my husband. He's a type of Christ. I will treat him with respect, just like I do Christ. And he gives me everything that I need as a human being within his power. I mean, here in this physical frame with the thorns and the thistles and the curses that God gave, it's hard to do for your wife everything you want to do for her. But that should be our attitude. And that's a tall order in itself because we tend to be selfish as a human being. So it doesn't come easy. This, this section on women was a lot longer word-wise, than this section on men. But I've been more here, I've been spent more time here than I did on the longer one, haven't I? Because there's an awful lot of meat in that one verse about the responsibility of a man and what he ought to be to be a true man instead of a weasel. Be sure that you are living in such a way and treating her in such a way that she looks to you and says, wow, if Christ is anything like him, I'm going to go pray to God. I'm going to go pray to, you know. He's helping me see the kind of warm, loving, tender, 
caring God that Christ is. And it makes her prayers better instead of tougher. So we need to all ask ourselves the question. When my wife looks at me and analyzes me, does her spiritual and prayer life get easier or harder? (laughs) Does she go in there and say, Oh, God, help me live with this man. (laughs) You know? Or does she say, Father... I'm so thankful you gave me him because it just makes me easier to love you. Quite a contrast. And just one verse on men, but there's an awful lot said there about our responsibility in taking care of her in the same way that Christ would. He's going to be sure she's fed and clothed and happy and secure and has no cares in life, if he's the kind of man he ought to be, like Christ, or Christ-like. And really, you, you say in the Bible, well, this person is a type of Abraham, or this one's a type of Christ, or whatever. We're all types of Christ. That isn't a great big revelation that one individual is a specific type for whatever job he has to do. Every man, we just read, is to be a type of Christ to his wife. To be like Christ, and it's a direct type. And a woman is supposed to be like Christ too. It's a direct type. Every one of us should be a little Christ running around here. And I don't mean that in some kind of a pie-in-the-sky spirituality. It's just... We're to walk as he walked and think as he thought, man and woman. And if we do, our marriages will be better. They'll improve to the degree that we walk in the knowledge of God. So, does this make sense to us? Of course it does. But how many people out here in this world understand this? They don't get it. They only think of life, of a marriage, basically as physical. Yeah, there may be a few religious types that kind of see an analogy, but they don't really get it. And they don't understand who Christ was, or what he was, or how he lived, or how he thought. They just think, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's the extent of my religion. No, this is, through this book, you find all kinds of things that tell you how to be the right kind of human being. It's the instruction manual for being a human and for being a bride of Christ. And we need to look at it that way and understand it was written for the spiritual Jew, for the church, is what this book was written for. Those people who are going to come up the great wine throne judgment, those abortions and miscarriages, they don't need this. You'll be there to teach them at that time every word that is in here. Now, they may have them. I'm not saying they won't. But they don't need it like we need it because we're living in Satan's world and man's world and we need something to show us how to live. You go to college, they'll teach you all this psychology stuff and philosophy stuff and how to get along with your same-sex mate or some other kind of garbage. But they won't teach you how to live like Christ did. I'll guarantee you that. If you bring up Christ, you might even get kicked out. 
Mohammed's okay, but don't mention Christ anymore. That's the way the world turns today. All right. Since we're on this, let's go to Titus 2 for a little bit. Uh, I'm over time. Well, this thing's about four minutes fast. I'm too bad. Okay, let's just stop. We can go there tomorrow.